Good evening, friends. And I'm delighted to welcome you, all of you, to this, our, the 10th William G. Bowen Lecture, which tonight is um, very happily co-sponsored also by the Princeton Committee of Public Lectures and the School of Architecture. The Bowen Lecture is an annual event which we do in the name of the Center for Jewish Life as part of our ongoing um, effort to uh, bring to the campus as a whole uh, people and issues of wide concern to not only the Jewish community but to our society. And certainly I think tonight's lecturer embodies that at the highest level. Uh, you'll see the previous Bowen lectures on the back. Uh, I'm pleased to tell you that these lectures are uh, sponsored by a grant from the Wolfenson Family Foundation and uh, Jane, Jim and Elaine Wolfenson in particular are much in all of our debt. Uh, let me thank also Professor Sergio Verdue and the Committee on Public Lectures and Dean Allen and the School of Architecture. Um, I'd like now to uh, introduce uh, Joe Sklut, class of 05, who is our current chair of our Center for Jewish Life Student Board, who will introduce our speaker. Thank you, Rabbi Diamond. Good evening. As we just heard, the purpose of the Bowen Lecture is to bring today's greatest Jewish minds to our campus and community. A quick scan of the history of this lecture shows that previous Bowen awardees share a common attribute. They all had one foot firmly planted in the, quote, secular world, and one foot firmly planted in the Jewish world. Tonight, we welcome Daniel Liebeskind, a professor scholar, virtuoso pianist, architectural theorist and practitioner, social activist, New Yorker, master planner of the World Trade Center, designer of the Freedom Tower, not to mention husband and father. Perhaps more than any other Bowen awardee, Mr. Liebeskind unites these two worlds in his words and his work, and we will hear some words in a few moments. He is hailed the world over for introducing a new critical discourse into architecture, and an essential element of that discourse is memory. As Jews, memory is something which we are, with, with which we are very familiar. Historian Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi observes in his celebrated book, Zachor, that in the Torah, Jews are commanded repeatedly to remember. One example should suffice. We're told first, to remember the Sabbath day, and then to observe it. Furthermore, remembrance is a central element of our religious practice, for in it, as Yerushalmi says, the past is conjured up to life again for subsequent generations. In his daring architecture, whether Berlin's Jewish Museum or at Ground Zero, Daniel Liebeskind is known for compassionately and respectfully conjuring up memories, to use Yerushalmi's phrase. Last year, unveiling his design for Grand Zero, Mr. Liebeskind remarked that he visited the site 
to feel its power and to listen to its voices. Indeed, it's safe to say that few artists today, there are few artists today who have as keen an ability to feel and to listen as Mr. Liebeskind or as profound an ability to represent that power and those voices in physical form. It is in this process of representation that Mr. Liebeskind bridges the gap between the secular and the Jewish, and it's for this reason that we honor him tonight. So without further ado, I, I am honored and privileged to welcome Daniel Liebeskind to this podium to present the 2003-2004 Bowen Lecture entitled Building Places from Memory. After the lecture, there will be a brief question and answer period. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Daniel Liebeskind. so much. Uh, it's a great honor to be here and to share some thoughts. Uh, and certainly, memory uh, in 20th century, 21st century is not just a footnote. If we really think of what happened uh, not just to architecture, but to humanity, to human beings, and the changed role of architecture in contemporary society, as I was uh, driving up here, I thought, why is it that architecture has diminished in its role in its important social role uh, in the world today, in the United States, for example, why we are so much more interested in movies and entertainment, uh, in cosmetics, in sending people to the moon, than on simply the care and the ability to understand the communicative nature of architecture. And I've always thought that, indeed, architecture has lost uh, some of that, uh, that communicative power to, uh, to tell a story because the 20th century ideologies have basically co-opted architecture and created a kind of machinery out of it which alienated much of what we consider urban space uh, buildings from human beings. So I've always thought there is another dimension of architecture, perhaps it's the more traditional one, in which architecture tells a story, not a story about itself only. This is what architects normally do. Uh, in the modern times. They tell a story about how a building is built. It's a kind of a narcissistic, uh, self-involved uh, uh, intra-reflection of what they do. But the greatest story, the, the, the place of architecture in the world, where, the orientation which architecture provides, and we know well that uh, a building, a street, uh, a landscape, uh, a window that we have onto it, uh, alters our view of reality. And yet, I think most intellectuals, most intelligent people care about what's going on in technology. They care about what's going on in economics. They care about what's happening in the sciences, in the arts. But when it comes to the house, the office, the building they live in, the street, they just take it for granted. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it should be. And yet, I've been often baffled by the inertia of architecture. It's a field that uh, it's pretty stable, not much change for thousands of years. Uh, we expect the changes everywhere else, but when it comes to architecture, we are willing to accept kind of the, the immemorial. And in some sense, as an architect, when I fought with authorities to just shift the window by two degrees, uh, I felt the visceral 
compulsion of the public to say, no, we can't have a window that's two degree off. It has to be this way. A door which is placed just slightly off-center. A wall which is not quite perpendicular. And I thought, yes, there is a power in architecture. And there is also power in holding on to what we know. And the tension between these two things is a kind of dialogue uh, in a space uh, that is not purely linguistic, which architecture certainly provides. But I've always thought that's the role of architecture. The architectural story is not over. History is not over. Uh, we haven't seen the last of space. We haven't seen the last picture out of the horizon. So architecture has the ability, just like other disciplines, to move not only intellectually but emotionally. And I think that's, there is a kind of Jewish sensibility also in the sense that, that in the Jewish tradition, there is not that great divide between what is thought and what is felt. And I think that's also part of how I view architecture, that it is not just a theory. It is not just something abstract, which is translated through a series of abstractions, through an abstract mechanism and appears as an object in space, but it's something that is also emotive, something that is close to the heart and that very often has a spiritual dimension to it. I know that this is a quite embarrassing word when it comes to just normal discourse. The minute that word enters, everybody shudders and they think, you know, what do you mean? It's, it's about concrete, it's about glass, it's about weight, it's about gravity. But uh, these are simply means to ends which are not purely material. And uh, it is uh, certainly in my view, my opinion, that architecture uses material reality. But like everything else in life, it's about something other, something else, something which is not quite imminent in the physicality of its own construction, but communicates to all people in new ways, uh, and it's something universal. So I've often been very depressed by the 20th century reduction of architecture uh, to a kind of necropolis. That's what Adolf Loos already said uh, in the beginning of last century. He said, you know, there is a difference between building and architecture. Building is what we have in everyday life, and architecture we have in death. The cemetery is the only... And I thought, what a depressing thought, what a depressing view of human beings that architecture has devolved only into the most negative dimensions of the soul. When it comes to everyday life, it's vanished from life. And so I do think that the everyday life is the most important. And the celebration of life in all its, in all its dimensions. And life is not just about a simple thing. It's not just about uh, the, the obvious joys, but it has a complexity built into it, as we all know and as we all experience. And I think space is one of those vehicles that, that is there for us to understand more about the world, also more about ourselves. It's something which, uh, as you remember in Proust, uh, he tells us uh, that the whole novel, his whole life, his whole effort, his big project of being a writer and being somehow also beyond just a technician came from an experience standing on two uneven stones uh, in a church, you know, in Venice. That just the, that momentary coincidence of instability in a stable environment provided him with a kind of the complete revelation that only architecture can bring to other issues. So that's basically uh, a kind of small introduction to, uh, to, to sharing with you some ideas. And I, I thought my first two projects and my last project, my first project we built was the Felix Nussbaum Museum, 
uh, in Osnabrück in Germany, northern Germany, in a very obscure town uh, in which Felix Nussbaum, a person who I did not know and a person who happened to be a famous Jewish painter in Germany at the early part of the century and whose life turned into a nightmare in 1933. Uh, a person who, like millions of others, was almost eradicated uh, from history and the 1976, I believe, Encyclopedia Judaica does not even have an entry under the Nussbaum name. Uh, he was, but the city of Osnabrück, obscure Catholic town uh, at the border of the, at the Dutch border, far away from the, the, a, 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 even a, an airport, which is only a, an hour away in, in, in Munster, uh, uh, this town had decided to build a small, modest building. And I thought, what does this mean? Felix Nussbaum who, in his self-portrait, which I discovered, it's a famous uh, portrait, uh, it's a small painting, uh, which he calls himself self-portrait with identity card. He, he, it's only his head. He's holding an identity card with his name and his number, with a Jewish star uh, on, on him, and he's surrounded by bleak high walls, gray uh, high walls, and beyond that you see a kind of murky gray sky. No horizon. And I thought, how should I make this building? It was a competition. I was lucky to win this. This was my first building. And I thought, the building should really be based on the look in his eyes. It's a hard thing to base a building on such an impalpable thing. But it was that look in his eyes, the haunted look of someone whose life, his memory had been dramatically altered and the future was obscure. And I did build a building, and I called it uh, in German Museum on Ausgang, the museum without an exit. It was not just a metaphorical uh, name. I literally built a museum made out of three very simple volumes, three, you can say, kind of boxes that intersected in such a way that you really could not find an exit. It was connected to the main, of course, historical museum of Osnabrück. And I called it a museum without an exit because I thought, People who come to this museum should not just you know, go through the newly recovered paintings of, of Nussbaum and, and enjoy just the beautiful works that he produced. He was a very good painter. But they should find the dead ends of life that don't have a simple way out except through the viewer's own participation in the drama. And that's what I meant, that history is not a story with a good ending or a bad ending. We don't know what ending it has. Uh, because part of our participation in it creates that impetus uh, in which the ending happens. In any case, uh, this building is constructed of three simple, uh, simple uh, volumes. Uh, one is a wooden building, an oak building, uh, which uh, I thought should contain his early works, romantic works, uh, his uh, bar mitzvah in his synagogue, portraits of his father and so on. Uh, family, landscapes of northern Germany. Then another volume, which is a very radical volume, which cuts across it. It's a blank, that's the main volume of the building, blank concrete uh, box, very narrow, uh, without any door in it. And it's the front elevation of the building. Stands, by the way, in front of the great churches of Osnabrück, great walls of Osnabrück, which is the city where the Treaty of Westphalia was found, uh, signed, very historical town, which the Germans visit the way the Austrians would visit Salzburg for kind of a connection with, with the church, with religion, with, with transcendence. And that volume, which is the main uh, elevation of the building, is, what, about 11, 12 meters high, about 60 meters long. And I thought it should be an entrance into blankness. 
the greatest unpaintable picture of Osnabrück in its memory and in its potentiality also as something to be filled in by citizens of a new era. And that volume, by the way, as long and high as it is, I attempted to make as the narrowest building I could build under the German regulations. For a very simple reason, I came across a photograph of Felix Nussbaum, and his story is an interesting one. He escaped, he, he, he had been so famous, he received the Prix de Rome uh, from the government, and in 1933, Goebbels himself uh, took the scholarship away and made him an unwilling alien. He had no home to return. He, he tried to, to find a place, but he was captured. He was uh, uh, imprisoned in many holding camps in France. Finally, he escaped uh, to Belgium, to Brussels with his wife, Polish painter, Volker Platek, and they both hid in an attic, and he continued to paint. His whole experience, he continued to paint in, in ever more intense paintings, what was happening in the world around him. And unfortunately, he was given away by his neighbors. They smelled, you know, this, the Gestapo was looking for him, the oil paint, he painted in oils. And he was on the last deportation train to Auschwitz, died just before the liberation and the end of the war in Auschwitz, both he and his wife. And I thought, how does one make a connection then to the future? So I created a third volume, which penetrates between the wooden building, which has the old paintings uh, uh, slated and, and, and geometrically aligned with a former synagogue on Rollenstrasse, which was burned during the Kristallnacht, a, a metallic bridge that, that connects these volumes, and I called it uh, the bridge of the future of Nussbaum. And it was funny because this is a public project and in Germany everything scrutinized very highly. And people said, well, we know everything about Nussbaum. There is to be known. There's nothing to be known in the future about him. Uh, but it's interesting what architecture does. The act of building this building uh, had an impact on two collections returning to Osnabrück, one from New York and one from Israel. Collections in which his, uh, his paintings, uh, his signature was erased out of the paintings, and, but people knew it was Nussbaum. And they came back and they are displayed in this, in this bridge which flies and connects these two, see, these two other volumes, the wooden oak building and uh, the very thin and narrow volume, which again, I said, uh, I, I didn't f finish my sentence, but I based it on a photograph of Nussbaum. Uh, in, uh, in his attic uh, painting. And I saw he was working this close to the wall. He, has n he had no place to stand back from his paintings. And I thought, that's what it's about. It's not just to create a beautiful aesthetic experience to just love the paintings, but to create a connection with a kind of incapacity and flattening and yet a distant horizon which is there in his paintings. So it's a very dramatic space. Uh, the authorities uh, said that... Uh, one meter sixty. I wanted to make it even narrower, but it's just about one meter sixty. It's not very narrow. And they thought it would be claustrophobic and people would not be able to look at the paintings. But it's, it's very wide. It's still much, much wider than the horizons in the paintings and his self-portraits which are exhibited in that space. And I thought, yes, this composition in grays, because oak becomes gray, the concrete becomes gray, the metal that I use becomes gray. And it's now kind of a gray a set of grays in different reverberating hardnesses of material. It's interesting that this building uh, kind of works because in a town of, what, 160,000 people, it has attracted more than double of its own population. It's, it's not a town that you would ever take a detour to because it's so far away in the middle of kind of countryside. But I thought even here, people are interested. 
and compelled to hear a story. And the most moving thing about this building, which, which really connects with memory and, and structure, is my decision to have planted in front of the building something that architects mostly don't plant in front of uh, public buildings, sunflowers. And the reason that architects don't plant sunflowers is because in the winter they die, and then the earth looks very, very bad, it's bleak, brown, black earth, there's nothing, just raw, kind of nothing, death. And I thought, I'd, I'd like to uh, plant the sunflowers in front of this building because in the summer they bloom, and they are beautiful, and that was the favorite flower of, of, uh, of uh, Nussbaum. He was, uh, he was inspired by Van Gogh. He painted many paintings with sunflowers. But I didn't know what I was doing because when the building was built, the children of this town formed a kind of society called the Sunflower Society. They were high school students. A, a, a society of, of kids in schools whose mission was to communicate something about, to each other about the history of the town, what happened to Osnabrück in those dark years, and what does it mean for them today? And I thought, yes, that's the function of architecture. The function of architecture is not only to refer to its so-called program, but to evoke through its emblematic and visceral feeling something that is positive, something that is about life. And I think that is also something that I learned from a tradition of which I'm a part. So that's my first building. But my second building was really the first building I planned that was second to be built, which was the Jewish Museum in Berlin. And that building uh, is, a, is a strange story because uh, you know, I won an international competition, but winning a competition, as you know, whether it's ground zero or anywhere else, is usually considered kind of a ticket to oblivion because what does a competition mean? It's, you know, what do you do with it? How does it really develop? Who is really going to build? And what form is it going to have at the end? So winning the competition was easy, but getting the building built, uh, and this was across the turmoil of Germany, uh, unification, unification of Berlin, unification of Germany. Uh, the museum uh, changed its name six times. It started as a Abteilung, a Jüdische Abteilung, a, a department of the city museum, a small department, and then it changed its names and so on. It had six different directors, five different directors, five different... Uh, senators of building and of culture, but I stuck to it, and my wife Nina and partner certainly had the courage to do it, uh, stuck with it because something that was by coincidence handwritten into my American passport. Uh, it's very interesting, as I came to the border with a letter saying that I won the competition, uh, the border official, uh, in a very strange move, rather than giving me just a visa, let's say a temporary visa, to be an architect, uh, to work in Germany for the next six months or eight months or a year, read the letter from the Senate of Berlin, which was an official form letter, and in red ink wrote a full page in my passport, handwritten, saying, Mr. Liebeskind is allowed to come to try to build the Jewish department, the Jewish Abteilung, the Berlin Museum, da-da-da-da-da. It's a very funny way to enter when you come back to Germany through Frankfurt or you know, fly in from some other place and there's you know, a big lineup of people and instead of just looking at a password, they read and read and read <laughs> and they study and they are perplexed and finally, it's always the same. The official says, well, Herr Liebeskind, is your project finished? <laughs> and I had to say, no, I'm sorry. You know, the government changed. There's no money. By the way, the project went through a tremendous, uh, tremendous history because uh, in 1991, it was actually unanimously canceled by the 
by the Senate of Berlin. They said, we don't really need a Jew. You know, we've got many other problems, infrastructure, highways, uh, plumbing, all sorts of things. We can't think about history, Jewish history right now. That's not what... But again, uh, faith is something you have to have in a project. It's not just about the building itself. It's what it means. And I always took that passport inscription as a as a kind of unwitting manifesto that someone else, some other, inscribed uh, without not, uh, much reflection into that passport. And I held on to it. Uh, it was my identity card. And, of course, the building was a building that was not just a container uh, for exhibitions. I thought that the building should challenge the very program. And uh, uh, the program originally was, as I said, a Yiddish Abteilung. And I was allergic to that word because the word Abteilung has all sorts of connotation from someone who comes from my background. And the Yiddish Abteilung was, uh, was of course, the language of, of Adolf Eichmann as well. So I refused to design a Yiddish Abteilung, and I was the only architect to do so. I, I decided to, to not allow the Jewish department to be a kind of ethnographic department of the City Museum of Berlin, but to say that it should cut across through its voids and through its through its kind of eternal line in the history of that city, should cut through all the other departments of the city, the department of theater and film and cinema and uh, business and, and commerce, because certainly Jews were successful citizens uh, of Germany and of, uh, and of Berlin. They were not only the victims of the Holocaust, and they were integrated and integral to the success of, of the country. Uh, but again, uh, building that building was something else, and, and, uh, and uh, I, I'm sure... Uh, and this is uh, true because the mayor of Berlin, the former mayor of Berlin, Mr. Dietkin, said it to me. Uh, he said, you know, we had to build this building. We would have canceled every other building, but we built it only for one reason. Not because it had a Jewish program, not because it had these concepts, but because of its shape. And I thought about that. Because the shape is a very unusual shape. I didn't connect it. It's an extension of the Baroque uh, building, which is the old courthouse of Berlin, which was the former museum. And, uh, of course, the entrance had to be programmatically through the Baroque building. And I thought that was right, because how can you enter German history except the Jewish history, except through that descent into the Enlightenment? And yet, even at the height of Enlightenment in, in Berlin and Germany, at the time of Hegel, of Kierkegaard, of, of Lessing, of, all the, of Schleiermacher, of all the great Germans, Moses uh, my, uh, Mendelssohn, there was a darkness, too, in, in this enlightenment, because Jews were never truly accepted. Uh, and and I, 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 was, I thought, yes, there should be an entrance there, but there should be no visible connection between the two buildings, between the Baroque building and the new museum. And I did uh, create a connection underground, which is an unusual connection. It's a, it's a kind of tripartite overture to, the, to, to what I thought that history is about. And the tripartite overture is, first of all, a line that goes to a dead end, which is, which is the Holocaust. There's nothing beyond it. That's the end of Berlin as we know it. It's the end of, of, of things. They don't continue beyond that point. Uh, and it's at that end, and it's a very dramatic structure, which, uh, which, which I convinced the Senate of Berlin should be built. They didn't want to build it. They said, you know, what kind of building is this to have a tower that is 27 meters high, that is not heated uh, in the winter, that is not to be, uh, not air-conditioned in the summer, where it's raw concrete, where there's no light, where there's no electricity. This is not a museum, Mr. Liebeskind. And I said, yes, but you need in this museum also a moment of reflection on the absence of a museum, on the absence of any possible museum, given this direction. 
It was not easy to build, but I succeeded. The longest, uh, then there's another road that crisscrosses this, 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 this other dead end, which is the road to the garden. I call it the road to exile. And it's not just the exile of Jews from Germany, but it's the exile of Germany from itself, Berlin from itself. It's, it's, it's a doubled city, not only doubled by the division of the post-war history, but it's doubling of that history through its own alienation. And so I designed a garden, a very special one, uh, which had seven by seven columns, 49 columns. They're very tall columns, uh, seven, eight meters high. Uh, and inside is an irrigation system and earth, and things grow up high above you. Very disorienting garden. I wanted to create a garden where the entire city looks like it's off-center, off-balance, but the garden itself is actually off-balance. And I dedicated the garden, really, the first, the, 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 nine, the, the 48 pillars are filled with the earth of Berlin and stand for the creation of the state of Israel. And the central column is filled with the, with the earth of Jerusalem and stands for Berlin. So it's a very special garden, a very special experience. And then the longest route uh, through the building is the road of continuity, which runs to galleries, zigzagging in their own special ways. Uh, and again, the building was informed not just by architectural devices, by walls, proportions, light, these are the keys, but by many unarchitectural, para-architectural, by texts. Uh, Walter Benjamin's uh, Guidebook to Berlin, the Einbahnstrasse, the one-way street. I tried to open it from the other side. I created the 60 stations along that star, apocalyptic, apocalyptic star that he writes about, in the bridges across this gigantic uh, empty space of the void. I, I used Schoenberg's unfinished libretto for Moses and Aaron because I thought it's not really unfinished. He finished it. All the historians of music think it's unfinished, but I think it's absolutely finished. The, the third act it has no equivalent in music. It has only equivalent in the receding echoes of the footsteps of the void. So I choreographed it in some way in an acoustical space of that space. And I used other, I used the names, addresses of, of Jews and non-Jews who lived around the site and radiated along a matrix of a kind of a Star of David, which is definitely inscribed in the city. You can see it, uh, but it shines with a light and not uh, the light that we know from 1920s or 30s or 1890s or or 1400s, when the Jewish community was first formed. And the document forming the Jewish community in Berlin is dated the same day, uh, the same year, as the document forming Berlin itself. So in any case, that was a project that, that extended my notion that architecture is a text. It's an architectural text, it's not, uh, but it's a text that it can incorporate through its own means, because architecture cannot speak through words, it has to speak through the experience of the visitors. A kind of atmosphere and an emotionally charged and an intellectually complex atmosphere, which I'm very proud to say is, is popular with young Germans. Uh, when I first built it, people, you know, all sorts of things were said about the building. It will never be used. Nobody will ever understand it. It cannot have exhibitions, da-da-da-da. But I'm glad the exhibitions are there. People are coming to the museum in great numbers. One of the most visited museums all of Germany. It does not have any masterpieces. And yet, young people, a new generation of Germans, understand that across the visible, there lies an invisible dimension, and that invisible dimension is made palpable in architecture. You can read it through the addresses that fly through the city. You can send messages along lines that are actually imprinted in the windows of the museum, which are actually not windows, are only slashes along a certain narrowing horizon, which also always has a hope to it, because I think, and I've often thought about it, there must not be any other field as optimistic as architecture, 
Because you could be a pessimist as a writer, you could be a pessimist as a filmmaker or even economic expert, you could be a pessimist as a businessman, you could be a pessimist as a lawyer, a doctor, a poet, but you cannot be a pessimist as an architect because it's always the act of construction that brings something better forward that you have to believe in. So that brings me really to, to the fateful uh, point at which I was lucky enough to participate and then be awarded the commission for the master planning of Ground Zero. And it's an interesting coincidence in dates because people often ask me, well, where are you in New York uh, on 9-11? I said, no, I was, 9-11 was the day that the Jewish Museum opened. It was the first day that it opened. And how ironic that it also closed exactly on the same day because of the threats, no one knew exactly what it meant. And I thought, you know, how interesting, how fascinating, how strange history really is. You think something is over, you think, and yet the, the, the strange coincidence, the weaving of times and dimensions has a mystery to it. And I thought, I must enter this competition. I must do something. And I decided then and then that whatever happens, I'm moving to lower Manhattan and I'm going to do my best to try to contribute something. As you well know, New Yorkers uh, were split uh, almost 50-50, what to do about the site. 50% uh, said build nothing, this is a graveyard, this is death. You can't uh, just build things on it. And other have said, you know, build higher, build taller, because we cannot uh, uh, relinquish our freedoms in front of these, in face of these horrible terrorist attacks against democracy. And I thought, how does one combine these seemingly contradictory things together? It's not just, you know, here's a memorial and here are some tall buildings for office buildings. How does one see this as a living reality? As, as an assertion of living memory, a living mem uh, memorial, a, a, a memory which is alive in every sense, backwards, present, and forwards. And so I struggled with how, how to do it. And I have to tell you, I didn't do too much research for this project. For, I also, for, for, for Berlin, I didn't do too much research. Neither for Nussbaum. Because these were not histories I had to research. Uh, in Berlin, I... I I didn't have to study the Holocaust because somehow I came from that background. And in New York, I also came from that background because I went to school around the corner when the World Trade Center was being built. My father was a printer on Wall Street, worked you know, for 35 years commuting from the Bronx. And my brother-in-law worked in those tall buildings for many, many years as an engineer for the Port Authority. And I myself came to New York as an immigrant. And that's what I suddenly realized when I was thinking about the project. You know, what should I do? And all these, you know, heavy infrastructural issues of transportation, of, 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 of the meaning of the site, and how do you respond to the families of victims, and the community board one, and, and the great stakeholders, LMDC, and the Port Authority, and New York State, and, and the city of New York, and, you know, the myriad of, 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 of groups. How do you respond to it? I thought, yeah, I suddenly had really, it's kind of not really Proustian, but a very obvious throwback to my view of Lower Manhattan, which is indelibly imprinted on my mind. And it's not a symbol, as some critics have called it, the Statue of Liberty. You know, people think it's a symbol, just like they think the American flag is a symbol or a Declaration of Independence or 7076. These are not symbols. To me, it was a real person. When we arrived on the boat, and I lived under a totalitarian regime, and we were immigrants like millions of other people coming here, uh, and seeing that skyline of Lower Manhattan, I can only tell you that that feeling is, you know, it's hard for me to put it in words because I'm not a writer, uh, but 
Nothing has prepared you for it, for what you, are, uh, for what you see when you come on a boat. Now you fly uh, you know, from Kennedy or Newark, you kind of see the skyline uh, in, in an aerial view, which is, which is a kind of a violent and destructive way of looking at a city. But looking from the, from the boat, when it comes up, and we were woken up at early in the morning, sort of 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, we said, get up, because you'll see the Statue of Liberty. And out of the fog it came out, and it's an amazing persona, who, who turns, as the, as the ship turns into the harbor, the harbors were on Hudson River, just up in the 40s, 50s, and then the skyline that it, that it beckons you to is something also unfathomable, because it's not just the height. You, it's true, you cannot believe the height. I've seen all the movies about New York, and my father sent all the postcards, you know, describing here is the Empire State Building, here are these buildings, but nothing prepares you for the unfathomable power of what human beings can do. It's, it's true. It, and of course, it's not just built with material, because as an immigrant, it's also built with all the hopes you have, all the possibilities. Now you can be free to practice your religion, to think freely, to have opportunities to develop yourself. So that's what I came back when, when I came to the site. And I thought that's what the site should embody. It should embody that spirit and that form also. And I did base the entire site around the memorial. That was the center of the site. Provided a great matrix for competitors. And again, it's a master plan. It's not about designing all the buildings. It's providing the relationships between buildings and the meaning between buildings, which is, you can say, ineffable. Where is the meaning in a building? It's nowhere you can touch with your finger. It's, it's something that is also not measurable on any scale of success. Not because it appears on a cover of a magazine, not because you get high fees as, uh, as an architect, not because you're famous for 15 seconds. The ineffable quality of architecture lies in a kind of light that when everything is located in the right place, things shine out of it and into it in a way that is uplifting and it's, joy it's joyful and it's not cheap, it's not banal, it's not just a one-line image. And in fact, it's not an image at all because I, I think ultimately we've gotten so uh, used to seeing architecture as an image. And yet that's part of the idolatry, the fetishism that I always thought was not really part of a civilizational value because architecture is substance. It's not something you can just see with your eyes. It's something you feel with your body. It's something echoes. It's something like a musical instrument. It's acoustical. And by the way, our sense of balance is not in the eye. It's in the inner ear. It's, it's the audible sense of, of the city that really creates... The, the orientation, much more than the few pictures that we see on TV or in the movies that stylize the image of architecture and flatten it to something that can be manipulated at will by political forces and by others and appropriated as something that is disposable at the end. So, yes, that's what Ground Zero really is. I did not provide a picture, uh, just a pretty picture, a paper-thin plan, but something that could be developed in time, something that is resilient, something that, that has a strength because it also has flexibility, something that can respond to the great developing dynamic, the stakeholders, the, 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 all the people who are really part of that site. And who is not part of that site? Every taxi driver I, I talk to, every child on the street, people come up to me, we talk. Everybody, it, it's a site that belongs, by the way, to everybody in the free world because what I thought the site should be, and that's why I placed at the center, first of all, new streets, which never existed, a new connectivity within Manhattan, not the mega block that was there, but something that is part of the fabric of the city, uh, part of the, the walk of Melville, par, part of Whitman's 
view of of the beauty of of working in New York uh, under whatever the condition, how hard the conditions are, and part of my own uh, kind of rereading, I have to say, I reread a couple of texts. The, one of the texts that I reread is the American Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Of course, everybody reads these things in high school. You know, you read them, you you know, you think some lawyers know about it more than you do. But in fact, what's so interesting, there's very short documents. You can read them in 15 minutes as opposed to the constitutions of China or of, you know, big countries that have long books on, on, on freedom. And they're very moving documents because the founding fathers of this country were radical. They, they didn't take these things as emblems or symbols of something else or representations of something gone by, but a kind of future, an open future. And I thought, that is uh, what Ground Zero has to be. It's an open future. It has to be, of course, structured. It has to be pragmatic. And uh, I think the reason I won this competition is not because some ingenious ideas, but because I didn't the, the provide just a mega, mega structural image, but worked on the practical practicalities of how do you make a memorial and at the same time connect the trains, the path trains, the subway trains. How do you assure that you can begin, begin to build uh, high buildings and at the same time restore the skyline with the, with the Tower of Freedom, which is very important, I thought, because it's the connectivity of the streets, culture at the center, the, the memorial itself, the museums, the performing arts center, shift the entire site to a kind of spiral of buildings so that it becomes a neighborhood. It's no longer just standalone high-rise buildings, but a new neighborhood really connected to the Hudson River and taking uh, into account the multi-layered complex of Lower Manhattan, which is, of course, the Native Americans, the Dutch plan, the English plan, the beginning of the grid. One of the most fascinating things. So it is about the care for the echoes of that history. And those voices are not about to vanish. I think the voices of the past will never vanish. In fact, they get stronger in time, in my view. Things that we think are distant from us are actually closer, have a bigger impact. That's why we're so oblivious to it. And at the same time, provide an opening, the wedge of light, a space that is truly dictated by something even beyond human control, which comes from the orientation of light on a site, that, which is so unique because this latitude and longitude of ground zero, this 8.46 a.m., 10.28 a.m., when the towers were struck, when the towers collapsed, this wedge of light, this, this glimpse into luminosity, which is kind of cosmic, is also part of reviving the possibilities that architecture is not only a man-made, a woman-made, a human endeavor, but it partakes of something transcendent, something, something far bigger than we often give it credit to be. So, thank you. We'll take a few questions now. Um,
Well, probably inevitably, yes, because, uh, I mean, having grown up in a kind of a Yiddish milieu, uh, having also lived in Israel, having been part uh, of also a kind of a tragedy because my parents were the only survivors in their families. Uh, uh, they came, you know, my father once counted with my mother that 85 immediate members of their families were, were murdered in the camps. They were just virtually the only ones so having grown up in that milieu, you know, you don't really kind of think about it. But in some way, it's always there. And it's something truly human because the world has experienced uh, catastrophes. Uh, absolutely. And at the same time, I think what Jewish, what not Judaism, but Jewishness teaches in some way is the, that life is victorious, the, that it's about this world. And what you do somehow in this world that has an impact on the other side of the world. So inevitably, uh, and, and I was lucky to grow up in a milieu which uh, yeah, was a working class milieu. I didn't come, you know, it's interesting. Most architects come from a wealthy background. Most architects that I know who are successful have come from families that have given them commissions, houses, whatever. They come from already a, a layer, you know, to be an architect. Very few working class, I mean, maybe now at the beginning, women, working class people, minorities are beginning to be architects. I think it's going to have a big change, a big, big impact on, on how people view architecture, because coming from that background, you think differently also about social justice, about values, uh, and you don't let uh, someone else appropriate these values for you, because they belong to all Americans. They don't belong to some political party. Uh, and I was asked by somebody, well, Mr. Libeskin, are you a patriot? Are you an American patriot? And I said, yes, I am. I love this country. I love everything it stands for because it's also connected with everything else that I've experienced. And, you know, I work all over the world. Uh, I've just been to Germany a couple of days ago. And I'm very disturbed by the currents of anti-Semitism which are pervading the world. Uh, I'm building a large project in Israel. I'm very uh, disturbed at the shift of anti-Semitism towards the state of Israel globally. And, uh, of course, one thinks about these things, uh, and it's part of, of uh, also a human response. Uh, and I don't know whether I answered your question, but I tried. A picture of maybe typical Jew, uh, cosmopolitan Jew, but some of them, they say, you're not typical. You have no borders, you have no country. But like you said, this is your country, and Europe is your country. I know your biography, so I know uh, the reason I think you're so modest. I think you are a genius. And you made all us Americans and Europeans proud in your genius work. But you, you just mentioned there is horrible atmosphere in the world. And what do you think? this Tower of Freedom can do to all of us. I'm not saying European or Americans, because we're all afraid of something. We don't know what. You know, it's an interesting question, but I think architecture, particularly the verticality, and I think the verticality of Manhattan is something very inspiring. I think it's globally inspiring. It's been an inspiration, because there's something to the verticality, and I thought there should be a, a point of orientation, a point of importance to Ground Zero, the, 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 the Freedom Tower is an important marker of orientation because, uh, and we all know how, how that site has changed New York because those towers were such a stable element for so many years, 
giving a, a visibility to, to the lower Manhattan. But I thought we should do it in a different way. I thought it should be a tower which is not a 110-story tower of office buildings, of office floors, because I thought several reasons. Number one, there is no investment. There is no investor to build such a tower. This is a very practical reason. Number two, a tower of about 70 stories high can be made secure. It's a traditional, uh, traditional high-rise that we know from Rockefeller Center. It doesn't require sky lobbies. It doesn't require... It can be made uh, more secure, but is evacuable. It, 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 it's something that we can improve. It's something that is sustainable. But I also thought that to reach the full height, it, it, it has to be a meaningful building. It is the tallest building in the world, but I wasn't concerned with it being the tallest building in the world, but it being a building with a finite number to it. And 1776, the Declaration of Independence is the first and only document ever written in the world which asserts the equality of all human beings. So I thought, yes, that's a number that will never be surpassed by any tower that is ever built in Shanghai or somewhere else in the world. This will always be the number that is unsurpassable. And I thought, well, how do you connect that number? Uh, and of course, it has to be practical because you have to generate income, not just from the tower, but from building the high point. I thought, well, restore the, the antennae that were lost in the attack because that's also income-generating program. And I suggested that, and I suggested to, to, to tie that program with an ecological Component. I had the gardens, uh, SOM, Mr. Charles, uh, had the, the windmills. But in any case, I thought it's a new kind of tower. It's, it speaks to another spirit, uh, and yet it is something that I think brings hope, inspiration, and also something which is part of a greater whole, which is the other buildings on the site. We have 10 million square feet of density, many five large uh, high-rise buildings, uh, very high buildings. And the, all those buildings together really are a reciprocal movement to the torch on the Statue of Liberty. They have the same geometry. And as you move around, it's not a picture from one angle. You can see from New Jersey, from Brooklyn, from the Bronx, all around in a panorama, you see something important, something new, not a standalone building, but a community. And I thought, yes, it's about the response of New York, the whole community. It's not about a single investor or some power among, powerful politician. It's about the fabric of culture. Architects are, not, are very unmusical. They're not interested in it at all. Uh, but you have that background, and I was wondering if you uh, can see any influence. You know, it's funny. It's a funny question because I'm often asked. Uh, and I th Isaac Stern, who was uh, one of the eminent jurors, awarded me the America Israel. Uh, prize in music, together with Zeno Franciscati and Mrs. Kuzovitsky, no, no, not a group of lightweights, said to me, you know, you are the only person that we ever gave the award who didn't become famous in music. And I thought about it, you know, I thought about it for a minute, because in my own self-understanding, I don't really feel I've given it up. There is a connection uh, in, in, in architecture to music, and it's not just the obvious one. Uh, you know, this uh, German romantic uh, idea that, that architecture is frozen music. Not only in the proportions uh, of, 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 uh, of sound, not only in the harmonics of, of the metaphors of music, but even in the acoustical sense of space, that spaces are acoustically designed in a very practical way. Uh, the hollowness of the void in the Jewish Museum is an acoustical experience. It's, you know, you don't see much. You see nothing, almost blank walls. But 
acoustically, you can experience something that can never be shown on any wall in the museum, no matter how many collections would come back from former families uh, that vanished from Berlin and from Germany. So, and beyond that, I think uh, architecture, like music, is an endeavor of a community. Of course, there are soloists uh, and, and there are virtuoso performers. But I think altogether architecture is produced in a sense that it has to be orchestrated, choreographed, and even written out uh, in a kind of musical way. Because what is architecture? You make a drawing, and the, the drawing is nothing. It's, it's, it's like, a, like a score of music. If you don't know how to read it, it means nothing. It's just a, a you know, foreign language. So again, translation of, of architecture into space is something very much like music. Uh, so yes, I think music is 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 a key component in my work, and uh, we could, you know that's probably another lecture. <laughs> we'll take two more. Seventeen seventy-six. Um, a little later than that, Thomas Jefferson said that he thought that um, architecture had laid a malediction on America because we couldn't seem to find some form to express ourselves. And you jumped ahead to two thousand and one in New York. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what you think about um, Americans if they have a specific relationship, kind of, to the aesthetics and history of architecture um, that's different from a European tradition or philosophy of it? Well, America is a brand new country. It's, it's you know, it's, it's just, just born, you know, in comparison to, you know, many European countries or other countries. Uh, so it's, 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 uh, the horizon is completely open. I think we can't uh, really simply talk about so the history of, of American architecture. Of course, there's a very pragmatic Jeffersonian view. Uh, you know, to go to Rome or go to Nîmes uh, and take those models because we don't have time. You know, we, we've got a, you know, we've got a, we've got a country, to, you know, which is just being born and we don't have time to experiment. That's actually what he says. Uh, but I think as, the, as, as America sort of realizes its full potential, it will also realize, and people are realizing all over the country, that architecture is important, that there is a connection to, to the soil, to the, to the land, to the place, which is unique. Uh, as universal as, as the globe is, architecture is something handcrafted, I believe, and very, something irreplaceable, something that you cannot just interchange. I think that's, that has been one of the grand... Uh, uh, foibles of architecture, the fact that we treat it uh, kind of like an object. You know, we consider architecture like a car. And there are many theorists who thought it should be built even like a car, or like a washing machine, or an electrical toothbrush, or a, you know, a toaster. And the irony that the postmodern movement brought into it is part of that. But I always thought, not, not really. That's not how people really live. They don't, uh, they don't live in machines. They don't consider architecture just a disposable object because it's part of their lives. It's something very intimate. And it's funny how intimate we become with, with spaces we live in. You know, we move to a foreign place, you know, a new house or, or a new apartment somewhere in Princeton or New York, and it looks very strange. It looks very empty. Five minutes later, we think it's our home. And when we move out of it, we, we, we are at a loss for words, the nostalgia for it which shows that the, the scope or the breadth of architectural, uh, architecture vis-a-vis -vis the human need of, of expression. So I think, yes, I think uh, there is a growing, I think, awareness that people have, globally almost, that architecture is something important, that 
that it, it's, you know, it's not fair to have just one, one object here when you can get at least 20 different kinds of coffee in Starbucks, right, which was there. You know, very elaborate coffees. Uh, and that's just, a, you know, again, a, a mass-produced product. So certainly I think that the, uh, there will be a change. And I, I think in this sense, we're going to see a plurality. And I, I believe, uh, uh, and I thought about that just recently, that last century was the century of the one. You know, the one and only. The one will, the one thing, the one idea, the one architect, the one master. 21st century is going to be the century of the many. And that's completely different. It's, it's goodbye to the century of the one and welcome to the century of the many. That has new implications for how we construct the environment, uh, how we sustain it, uh, how we make our lives better. And I didn't speak about Ground Zero in terms of its ecological development because it's not just the shape of buildings and, and the kind of obvious iconography that you can see from the picture, but it's how it's actually built. It should be not just a series of green buildings, but we should really think about every brick and every uh, piece of steel. What does it mean? How much, wh what does it mean to, to do this on this site? And this site should be the, the, the most advanced site in not just preserving the energy we have, but appreciating, almost in a spiritual sense, uh, where we live. Yeah, you were. Um, I know in the uh, Jewish Museum in Berlin, in the garden, you spoke about that, how it has a physical effect that on the person, that thinking about it doesn't really um, convey the depth of uh, actually feeling the sense of um, displacement, I think which was very uh, appropriate for the museum. I was wondering what you had, uh, if you had something similar in mind for the World Trade Center and Ground Zero, um, any kind of physical aspect or acoustical something that would uh, convey on a different level of understanding and comprehension. Well, in general, I can just say yes. Uh, it's, you know, it's very complex to answer on a, without drawings and without getting into a specific discussion, but uh, almost every building, every building that I've built, uh, the most recent building which opened was the Imperial War Museum uh, in Manchester, which is a large building, and there it's, it's, it's a series of fractured pieces of the globe because the museum deals with conflict, and I thought conflict is ongoing. It's not something that is just in the past because we are living in, in a world of conflict, and Conflict, as Winston Churchill said, is not something that is going to go away. It's the most stable thing that we have, he said. Uh, so I, there, I mean, and that's also part of uh, the logic of Gun Zero, it's a broken globe which, which is re-erected on the site. But the entire large, you know, 8,000 square meter museum is based on a curvature of the earth. And it's not something that is visual. You know, when you see, when you enter the building, it looks completely flat. Uh, and most people assume that it's flat because they have never been uh, in a building where the, where the floor is continually curving in a very, very subtle manner. Uh, but everyone feels it. Uh, they don't know what they feel, but they feel slightly dizzy. Uh, they feel slightly, slightly nauseous. <laughs> and, you know, I thought that's right. That's the emotion I try to convey, you know, because I think we should feel that any time we, we stand on earth. Uh, we should feel that we are standing 
on a, on a, on a, on a rotating planet, uh, which is hurtling at incredible speeds through space, and that we are not invulnerable, that we are just a speck of dust in the cosmos, and at the same time, we understand it. So, in Ground Zero, there are ver- a ver- a various, uh, various things that I've done in, t- in terms of shaping uh, the streets, the public spaces, the way they come together. Of course, it's, it's uh, on a scale of the city. It's not on a scale of, of a building. Uh, but even within the, uh, buildings themselves, the, the, the horizon of, of the high-rise buildings, which forms a, a kind of a, a, a spiral movement, is uh, very different than seeing uh, the kind of Cartesian... They're all normal skyscrapers, but it, it will have a very different impact, I think, on what you see. And, of course, up close, the, the distances between buildings and the, the space between the buildings uh, and the relation between the memorial and what you see beyond it and bringing in other buildings into the composition, uh, both the old buildings like the Woolworth Building, the classical traditional buildings of New York, but also the World Financial Center and the Hudson River in a very unexpected way. I can't go into detail, but certainly that's the task. Uh, and it's uh, not about fun and games, but about responding to, uh, to program. And uh, certainly the program of Ground Zero is not my program. Uh, it's not the program that I invented, it, nor is it even my response. And when I speak about the master plan, you have to see it as an effort of a huge number of people. Uh, as I often pointed out, you know, the smallest meeting that we have uh, with experts, you know, 2,000 people, uh, something like that. That's the intimate meeting about, you know, discussing some little issue. So, yes, it's, it is uh, the LMBC, it is Port Authority, it's many, many organizations, and I think to make a plan that allows the project to continue in a positive way and to bring goodwill is the function of a plan, actually. And if a plan can do that, then it's a successful plan. If it cannot, then it's only something uh, good for architecture historians. Thank you. I'd like to thank Mr. Daniel Liebeskin for joining us this evening. And thank you all for joining us, too. Good night.